Christian Weishart, and this is Examining Ethics, brought to you by the Janet Prindle Institute for Ethics at DePaul University. We're reframing the philosophical canon today with Biko Mandela Gray and Ryan J. Johnson. Their new book, Phenomenology of Black Spirit, puts major black thinkers in conversation with the work of the philosopher Hegel. What we wanted to do was ask, how might we think about Hegel's book, This Phenomenology of Spirit, in relation to something called blackness? We really wanted to ask, what might it look like for blackness to be understood as central to philosophical thinking? What we really wanted to do was kind of reframe Hegel and also in doing that kind of work, engage with black studies and make this sort of profound argument that I think we both agree with is that blackness is central to modernity. Stay tuned for our discussion on today's episode of Examining Ethics. So we're here with the authors of Phenomenology of Black Spirit, Biko Mandela Gray. Good to be here. Good to be here. And Ryan J. Johnson. Thanks for having me. It was great. So before we start, I have a little challenge for both of you. I need you to explain phenomenology to me in three minutes or less. Go. There's phenomenology as a tradition in the 20th century leading most famously to Edmund Husserl, which has to do with an understanding or an attempt to develop a science of consciousness, as well as to focus on experience and treat that as a legitimate kind of knowledge and a whole tradition that goes from there. Phenomenology in the way we're using it, it has to do with that for sure. But it all, in Hegel's sense, it all has to do with the science of consciousness as self-consciousness developed through history. So it's how self-consciousness came to know itself as self-consciousness. And that's the part of the of phenomenology that we're engaging most in. How would you add? Anything add to that, Biko? In the 20th century, you have a guy who asked the question, how can we know anything? The old Cartesian question, right? How can we have certainty about anything? And instead of doing the doubt method, Husserl decides he wants to turn to experience. In the 19th century, Hegel's thinking about how consciousness develops over time and in history. And so the question is certainly a question of experience, but it's also this sort of question of epistemology and logic. Hegel was trying to understand how does a consciousness develop and then how do we develop into communities of consciousnesses as well. And so the question is, how, how does one, you know, sort of think about oneself and then think about oneself in community and how does that unfold over time? Cool. And I wasn't watching the clock, but I think you did it. I think you did it in less than three minutes. So tell us, what's, what's your project for this book? What, what is Phenomenology of Black Spirit all about? There's, I think, two levels to it. One is sort of canon correction or canon transformation or dealing with the question, what do we do with the canon? So I was trained very much in continental philosophy and, and Hegel was taught to me as it is often taught in, in many places, but it was missing a lot. A lot of questions were not addressed. And one of those main questions was race and particularly blackness. So one of the issues is thinking about how do we, what do we do with the canon, given that it's still valuable and it's still interesting, but it does a lot of harm. It has done a lot of harm and its exclusions are, are violent to all sorts of people, not only in the past, but currently today. So there's a kind of attempt to read the canon Hegel through questions that weren't raised, but should have been raised, as well as treating thinkers who've been excluded from the canon not only as thinkers worthy of 
added to the canon. That's not that's not the goal. It's not just to add the canon, but to see how they've been doing philosophy the whole time, and then to put them in conversation with Hegel to see how they then add to, transform, improve, and whatever happens from that is is we're open to that, right? But that goal of trying to transform the canon is that's one major goal. We wanted to go to like, you know, the big text, the one where he, you know, sort of lays out things kind of explicitly and in this grandiose way. And, you know, it's an incredibly smart text. And what we wanted to do was ask, how might we think about Hegel's book, This Phenomenology of Spirit, in relation to something called blackness? And specifically, I mean, it said, I mean, the wild part about it is, is that if you look over the course of black history, you'll end up seeing in many different places Black people engaging in Hegel's work, engaging with the dialectics. And in so doing, you see this sort of moment unfold where Black thinkers are thinking with his work, even though it's never clear to me that Hegel would have respected them as thinkers. And so in doing this, we wanted to ask, you know, we really wanted to ask, what might it look like for Blackness to be understood as central to philosophical thinking, in this case, the phenomenology of spirit? What we really wanted to do was kind of reframe Hegel and also in doing that kind of work, engage with Black studies and make this sort of profound argument that I think we both agree with is that Blackness is central to modernity. I loved the whole book, but I want to focus on one chapter, chapter six. So this is the chapter about Martin Luther King Jr. and Ella Baker. And to me, and I know this is a very technical term, it was the most ethics-y of all of the chapters. You're writing about something you call sacramental work and desire. So help us first understand what that phrase means. I'll think about it from the, from the perspective of someone like Ella Baker, who is in many ways devoting her life to this work. And just to, to make things clear to folks who maybe haven't heard of Ella Baker before, She's an organizer and activist who's working roughly around the same time that Martin Luther King Jr. sort of comes to prominence. Am I getting that's that right? right. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah that's sure. right. She's right around. She's it's it's that 50s, 60s period, and she's the one who's actually the sort of engine behind SNCC, right? So the the civil rights movement in the 50s and the 60s is broken out into you know this this Southern Christian Leadership Conference. This is King and his boys. But then there's a group of like undergraduate students and students across the country who are really, really engaged and ra- radicalized. This is um, people like John Lewis. And so so she's the engine behind that kind of engagement. They're actually contemporaries of each other. And at times, as we say in the book, a little bit adversaries from time to time, because because King is inadvertently getting caught up in the hype that is his name. But Baker keeps reminding everyone this is about the work. This is about the work of justice. And the only way that we're going to get that work of justice is to empower everyone and not simply unify behind a singular leader. So ultimately, what, what the way I understand and the way we try to put this forward in the text, um, one of the big things that's happening at this particular stage in the dialectic is that, is, is that ultimately the subject or consciousness or Black spirit as we understand it goes to work and goes to work as an act of what we, what, you know, Ronald Judy might call poiesis, goes to work as a kind of a way of not simply self-affirmation, but a way of devotion to, and devotion is another technical term that we'll use later, but goes to work as a way 
of essentially making the world better. And so what you see with King is his attempt to work through these sort of ideals that have been given to him. And so he's doing this under the fundamental conviction that, that the United States can be better. The problem, of course, is that he does it and he becomes, he gets caught up in his own hype. Not necessarily personally does, but like he ends up, he ends up becoming a figure of such great magnitude that what he was essentially trying to do in terms of working toward an ideal essentially turns back and it turns out that it's ultimately he becomes sort of this, this sort of at the central, central point of this work. So this chapter is the central chapter in uh, three chapters. So the book is in six parts, first half and second half. And this is then the se- second part. And there's three parts that are under this term that Hegel is, is unhappy consciousness. And what ha- unhappy consciousness is, is it comes out of a moment right before, at the end of the first part, or unconscious self-consciousness is split with King and Baker. It's we need to do the the work, not to get rid of the self, because the self is that through which the work is done. So it's no longer an attempt to purify or erase the self. Now it's we need to do the labor, and bring about that world. There's we can't. There's no place to return to. There's no purity that is there. We need to do the work so that it comes um, comes about. The problem with with uh, with King, as Biko just said, is that as you try to work through the self to get rid of it to reach that higher form, it gets in the way. As the more you work, the more recognized you get, the better you feel. That is, doing good work feels good, and you feel yourself more, and so that it, it, it erupt, uh, that interrupts the attempt to uh, reach that higher self. With Ella Baker, it's a different. She's better at it because. She doesn't become <laughs> the figure that King does. So she's herself doesn't get in the way the same way. That's what um, her name doesn't become as prominent in this process. And the work itself actually actually is, is more achieved. It's more more even effective, you might say. That's the shift that happens between King and Baker, right? And then this is something that Ryan and I, like I really appreciated us sort of really thinking through this one together because what goes down is Baker's, the Baker's legacy is not in a bust on in DC or it's not in a, some, some holiday that essentially turns her into a legend, although she is legendary. It is actually installed in the work of developing other people who can become leaders unto themselves, right? So she teaches other people how to lead. And in doing that, she's better at this sacramental work because the work keeps going. And we see this contemporarily in the Black Lives Matter movement, right? A leaderful or leaderless movement, a movement where you ultimately have, instead of one singular figure dominating the political the political ideas, dominating the vision, each chapter, each the movement is fractured and it is local and each local community develops its own leaders. And so you see that operative and you see that spirit being the actual spirit that's motivating contemporary racial justice movements. So this always happens to me when I talk about phenomenology, which is my, I think I get it. And then I start talking to people about it and my brain breaks again. So when you're saying that they're trying to, is it move through the self or move past the self? Is that something that's kind of a project of phenomenology in general? Is this desire to move past one's individual self and into some greater thing 
and, and in this case, I'm assuming the greater thing would be racial justice in the United States and the world, right? So, I mean, I think that's one way to think about it, for sure. I wouldn't make the claim about phenomenology more generally in that sense. I mean, so I don't, maybe um, to really pin it down, the self-consciousness, I can just like to define how that is operating for, for Hegel, and then to think about these different parts. Consciousness has at least two things. There's self and there's the object of consciousness. And when self-consciousness, they merge so that the self is both the object of consciousness and the subject of consciousness. And that's this paradoxical structure, right? How it can it be both subject and object at the same time is what Hegel finds so interesting in self-consciousness and what he thinks is grounding modernity. The different parts of consciousness, that subject and object, which again are the same, right? Those are the two parts we're talking about. When it gets to the unhappy consciousness that we see with the Sacramento work and desire with King and, and Baker, that higher self, right? That higher part can be lots of things for it is racial justice for sure. And for King, it's also living up to the ideals of the American promise. It's that the way in which it's operated in amongst the particulars that amongst the individual situations in American history has been violent, racist, and, and all these things. But he thinks there's this higher part that we can still raise up to. We can still live up to these promises. And that's what he's trying to, that's what he desires. That's what he's trying to, to achieve. And Baker's uh, has similar goals, but not the same kind of belief in those M American ideals. That's where you might bring in more questions about well, racial justice and, and, of course, gender justice and other forms of social justice. And also for some of the figures, it is not simply racial justice that they're after either. I think about Zora Neale Hurston, for example. Zora Neale Hurston is someone who is yes, she's interested in this question of, of justice, but she's also much more interested in the question of self-determination, right? So how do we think about, and, and how, do, how do we think about how we move through the world as both individuals and individuals in relation to one another? And sometimes that looks like justice for her. Someone like Zorna Hurston, her question is something both bigger and smaller than racial justice. It's about how Black people might come to live and might come to have a sense of self-determination in the process. And so these are just, you know, this is the devotion piece we talk about in the chapter, um, I believe that precedes this one. I think Ella Baker's also thinking in these ways too. So I bring this up just to say, I think racial justice is one of the, one of those goals, one of those universals, but I also think someone like Baker's thinking about questions of gender, she's thinking about questions of class, King will eventually think about these things as well. And, but it's also not subsumed under the sort of American mythos of, of inalienable human rights in the way that King is thinking about it. I could be wrong about this, but I assume that many of the uh, Black thinkers and, and activists that you're talking about in this book don't necessarily have Hegel and phenomenology like front and center in their brains the whole time. But you write that Martin Luther King Jr. was hugely influenced by Hegel. So can you help us understand how he was influenced and and why that's important when we're thinking about what Martin Luther King Jr. is like doing with his life and his work? Our friend Stephen Ferguson, who's a great uh, scholar at NC State, he has this uh, awesome chapter called like The Philosopher King, and it's about Martin Luther King. And he did a lot of the work, the archival work, to find out who was his teachers, what were the syllabi, when he was in Boston and training, and that's when he really encountered Hegel. I think one of the ways 
in which Hegel becomes really important for King. And he's in his, in when he's in undergrad, more so when he's getting his graduate degrees, he's reading a lot um, of them. And it's, a lot of it is the kind of standard Hegel that you actually, we actually don't, we're, we're not actually as interested in. We're interested more in the way in which Hegel illuminates how he lived and then how he lived pushes Hegel on the parts that King himself didn't <laughs> take up in his own theory. You all know that Martin Luther King quote, the more often the universe is long, but it bends toward justice type of thing. I think this is a way of encapsulating precisely what Ryan so powerfully articulated, which is it's it's this this progressive development, I think, for King. And I think Ryan's also right. I was already laughing as, as you were talking because I was like, we are not interested in that part. <laughs> but but definitely, I think King himself saw in Hegel, especially after sitting with Ryan, because Ryan did a lot of work on uncovering King's connection to Hegel and his thinking with Hegel. I think a lot of King's attraction to Hegel was this dynamism, this, this sort of like long, this long like cosmic, thinking in cosmic in grand terms and world historical terms and thinking about these world historical terms as moving along a progressive arc of history. I think that's what attracted King to that. And it probably is one thing that philosophically gave him a little hope too. King found hope in Hegel, both because of the, the I'm glad you brought that up, because the sense of a moral arc or the sense of providentialism like that, but also because in Hegel, you see unity arising out of conflict. So that how things move in Hegel is through tension, through contradiction, through division, through segregation, through separation. And then you see through that a kind of unity. So, of course, if you're, you know, if you're fighting segregation and you're working towards some unity, this is the logic through which that will come about. So I want to return to unhappy consciousness one more, because I feel like I need one more go helping me understand what it is, but then also help me understand how Martin Luther King Jr.'s understanding of happy consciousness kind of translates into political action. Whew. So, I mean, we'd have to walk through the multiple sort of stages that lead up to unhappy consciousness. We start the text, you know, with the Lord's Bondsman dialectic. And, in, and as we move through this particular thing, what happens ultimately in, and I'm going to boil this down to very, very, very like basic crude parts. So, what happens between you know between the slave and and the bo- and and the master is essentially that the slave recognizes that the master needs the slave to enact that work to enact to essentially fulfill the master's desires. And so the slave starts saying, "Oh, I'm actually you know there's something here for me. Like I'm like I this is sort of an emergent of kind of self consciousness, right? And as we say in the first. Um, chapter that this ultimately produces a conflict between the master and the slave, and the, and it's a fight ultimately to the death. My point in all this is is what we notice in the in the phenomenology is that the slave is the one who Hegel sticks with after that dialectical move. It's not actually the master, right? And so he's trying to figure out like what does the slave? How does the slave's consciousness develop? Well, the first move is stoicism. And essentially, essentially, this is the slave turning inward or the formerly enslaved in the case of black people turning inward. Right. Like now, like trying to understand their own inner life and committing themselves to a certain level of ideas, ideals that are in pretty much installed or inside of them. Now, Ryan, you can always correct me if I'm 
you know, making making too quick of moves or too hasty of moves. But but something about in in the case of Booker T. Washington, for example, something about this sort of turn inward, it is not as effective as it could be. And so then this produces internally a kind of schism, which is the sort of skepticism of Du Bois. And then the, and we call this, or his double consciousness, right? It didn't work. It didn't do the thing that it needed to do. And so now the question ultimately is like, you have these divided selves and, and in this divided self, you have this sort of internal turmoil where the subject sort of is struggling. And here's where I'm gonna transition over to Ryan. Because, because what happens in, in terms of unhappy consciousness is this, this, sort of, this sort of skepticism is also like insufficient and unsatisfactory. If you look in the second half of the phenomenology of Black spirit, there are actually a series of profound failures is not the right word, but failures is the word that I have, that the folks that we think with are struggling. They're not happy. These aren't happy endings to these stories. Part of this is, is that the unhappy consciousness really is unhappy. Like there is a lack of satisfaction in the process. And I think King is exemplary of this because he works so hard. And in the end, not only is he killed, but the movement that he worked toward, it doesn't die with him, but it really has, it, 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 it falls back significantly. Another way of thinking about the unhappiness is in the dividedness and in the failure, that's a fine word, to overcome that dividedness. So I think if you think about it in terms of Du Bois and the skeptic, which is this divided self, um, which we translate into a kind of thinking of double consciousness, which is, well, Du Bois says, I'm neither African nor American, right? I'm neither part of this nor part of the other. I'm separated. And so you don't have that home, you might think, that, um, that you can return to. And that dividedness, leads to a kind of lack of self or, or or questioning of self or even schizophrenia, right? Like, you know, am I this, am I that? I'm neither neither one nor the other. I'm not simply African. I'm not simply American. And what happens with unhappy consciousness is it raises up one of those and says, I'm this one, and I'm going to do what I can to become that one, to unify that one, to become one again. And with uh, Marcus Garvey, it's Africa. You raise up the African and say, we're going to be that. We're going to go to Africa and leave behind this determination that has been degraded by when we're still in here. So it's that attempt to continually uh, reach that higher form to unify with that. With King, it's that higher form is not Africa. It's actually these universals that America, these American ideals, an attempt to achieve achieve those by working out, by overcoming all the individuality and all the um, problematic determinations that have been around that you you say, King said, you, know, you say, I can't go to a lunch counter with you, but look, we're both American. Look, we're both have these ideals, right? And we can do the work of getting there. And maybe one way to think about that, and I'll, I'll stop here, is think of what nonviolent action is, which is, I will, here, I will come up to you. I will come up to your hoses, to your dogs, and you'll see my face. And as, as you, you might hit me or you might, strike me, it'll eventually see that I'm not the determination of this lower form you think I am, that we have some similarity, some ideal humanity that will eventually come through. And so you'll strike down your own individuality and I'll give up mine and we'll unify in this humanity. Thank you both, because that, that helps so much. It sort of helps bring to mind something that I really appreciated about your book is that a lot of people 
maybe think of Martin Luther King Jr. as like, he won. He did it. Racism's over. He's such a great person, and, and he, he, won, he wins. But that's not actually quite what happens, and you sort of illuminate that in your book, in that he was super powerful, super engaging, but in a lot of ways his, his individuality got in the way, right? And then as you said, as both of you said before, when he's assassinated, he sucks a bunch of the air out of the movement with him because he had such a big individual presence. And so then for me, what's so inspiring about the other person in this chapter, Ella Baker, is that she actually does kind of do a better job. <laughs> she de-emphasizes and decenters herself as an individual in order to make working towards racial justice more of a collective thing. You've already helped us understand a little bit who Ella Baker is, but what's her relationship to phenomenology and Hegel and, and this sort of dueling selves thing. <laughs> I teach an undergraduate course in African-American religion. And so I was um, actually teaching on King. Yes, actually, we ended up on King yesterday. And I was asking the students, like, not did his life matter, but did his death matter? Like in him dying, it did, did that, like, did the death actually matter? And it was, and I was pushing with the students, I was trying to tell them when he dies, the movement dies with them, but the country's not particularly mourning him in that moment. Right. He's fighting for the Vietnam War. And people are particularly like, oh, my gosh, like this was this was the worst thing that ever happened. That that happens over time. What actually happens is precisely what you pointed out, which is the movement like loses steam. And, and because of that, we have to ask ourselves, you know, how do we think about King and his reception history? And in, and in light of Hegel, this is why and, and this is why Ella Baker, you're right, ends up enacting it. In a, in a probably a more effective way, right? But it's also why we don't remember her too, which is what we talk about in the text. We don't remember her as well because her whole goal was to work with communities. So while King is organizing along this old school leadership model, right? You gotta have one person who's speaking for everybody. This is how things go, right? You've gotta have this sort of representative who's doing this thing. And King becomes the guy. He's charismatic, he can preach. Ella Baker is convinced She's not Hegelian. She, to, to my knowledge, I couldn't find anything where I found her reading Hegel's work or anything like that. And so in, in thinking with Ella Baker, what we were trying to think through was what happens if the sacramental work actually is effective? What occurs when that goes down? And what you notice is Ella Baker's not nearly as, in, as remembered in history as King is, there is no bust of her in the cap. There is no, there is no place where people are sitting through it. And yet she is one of the primary engines of the civil rights movement in general and that 1963 March on Washington. She's engaging in that work, but it's because she was not, I won't say wholly uninterested. She had herself, we say this, but she's less interested in amplifying herself than she is in developing herself in relation to other leaders. And this is actually how we end up getting to the next chapter, the next stage of the dialectic, right? Because, because people can go in, go completely the other direction, which is what Malcolm X ends up doing, which is losing yourself in all of these other things. Ella Baker doesn't necessarily do that. Ella Baker is still her. She's still doing her thing. She still has a robust sense of self. She takes credit for what she does, but she's not, she's not interested in amplifying herself or she's not inadvertently getting caught up in the amplification because her entire ideal 
is that everyone can be leaders. If you just give people the tools, they will do the work that they need to do. Ella Baker was once asked about her relationship with King, and it was a strange one. And I said something like, who was I? I was a woman. I was old. I didn't have a PhD. You don't know me, you don't know my name. And I think the if you want a metaphor here, if King, out of his how history happened or how it happened to him, could see from the mountaintop and look down and 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 project from there and inspire from there, Ella Baker was down on the in the valley, down on the ground, and doing the minutiae. So she didn't give the speech, the speech everyone knows, dream speech, but she was she did like the the details of who's on the bus, of making sure that there's gas, making sure that people have places to stay, making sure there's restrooms, so that kind of thing. And that means not leading as the face, that means working together, that means collectivity. So her determination wasn't, I will lead. It was, we need to work together. We need to collaborate. We need to deliberate together. We need to co-cultivate relationships. And only through personal communal action will the movement continue. Will the movement win sorry there's so many stories of her going to people's porches just walking around the south and going to people's porches spending hours there and figuring out what do you need i'm not going to tell you what you need i'm going to help you get what you need what does your community need here and that kind of work is not this mountaintop leading which not nothing wrong with that but that's not what she does and so her work her sacramental work uh is much more uh with and among people, and that's my you might might say that SNCC, SNCC continued in various ways. King, when he gets killed, if the movement dies, basically, SNCC transforms in very different ways, right? You see Sophie Carmichael taking over. You see uh, it continuing on beyond just her, because she would leave a place after she's done, and the movement would then continue. Good to have this. Uh, the determination wasn't just follow me; it was helping people become determining of themselves in their community in collectivity. And, and if I could add here too, I mean, Ryan, you just, uh, it, you got me thinking about, I mean, we are on, are on an examining ethics podcast, right? I'm so, cause if you think about the Black Panthers, yeah, I mean, yeah, you have these, you have these sort of charismatic leaders, right? These folks, but like their actual programs are deeply empowering communities, right? And to the point where the United States like robs them, right? Like free breakfast, right? For, for kids and so on and so on. So I'm thinking that, that yeah, I just, I just really wanted to echo that piece that you're talking about that, that her approach, and it, I think it is an ethical approach, right? That, that for her, she has an ethics of collectivity and love and care and community. And King does too, but she grounds her, the strength of her selfhood in that community, in those relations. Like, you can tell me what you need because you have the power to do so. And we can work this out together. I just want to clarify for the audience because we've said the acronym SNCC a couple of times and it stands for Student Nonviolent, Nonviolent Coordinating Committee. It's just a, it's an activist group um, that was prominent in the 1960s. But as you say, it sort of morphed into other things um, as time went on. So Unfortunately, we're almost out of time. Uh, I want to keep talking about this, but I also I'm just curious as a last question, what brought you both to this work? Why why do you care about this? So just a quick story, which is uh, Biko met at a, and I bet at a conference, and he was presenting this amazing paper on correct me if I'm wrong, 
It was uh, Toni Morrison, Levinas, and the voyeurism of the white gaze for black suffering. And I remember sitting at the table and just looking at this man and thinking, I want to think with you. I just want to think with you, right? And then so, and I had this idea for the part of the book. And then later on in the um, in the evening, I, after a few drinks and uh, and food, I asked him to do it and he didn't know me, right? And so he's like, what am I, what? So eventually we kept talking and found that it was, it was working and that we could, we could think together. And it was amazing. What brought us together is what was the beauty of his mind, what really. And I was like, I just want to, you know, just want to walk with you there. So we actually became friends. So we weren't friends and instead do that. We, we had an idea, a philosophical idea that brought us together and the attraction to each other's thinking and, and especially how, uh, at least for me, I don't speak for you, about how when we thought together, there was a different thing than when I think by myself. It's changed me so much. Like my writing is totally different now. And, and um, the concerns I have and the ways of addressing them are, are very different. Simply because I was at this conference in Dayton, Ohio, that our weird, awesome friend, Dustin Atlas, and I put on, and I saw a man's beautiful mind. And I want I want to, I want to, I want to be there. You know, when we talk about this stuff, it's always sentimental and it, and it does, it means a lot even to hear you say it, you know, again, I would say that what brought me to the work is something very similar. Like Ryan, you know, we're at this weird conference, Dayton, Ohio is in the middle of nowhere. I mean, I, you know, or maybe it was for me, I don't know, but we're in Dayton and look, you know, it's, it's good. This guy is up here, he's being charismatic and he presents a paper and somebody's eating pancakes in the back and he's talking about, you know, philosophy, religion and eating God and so on and so forth. And, I, and I'm and i saying to myself, this is completely different than the kind of philosophy that I had been trained to sort of do and enact. And so, and so you know, of course, you're at a conference after conference happens, there's dinner and there's drinks. And so people are you know, loosening up a little bit. And he comes and he says, hey, I'm you know, doing this thing and I'm thinking about this thing. I have, just have some ideas. I was wondering if you'd be interested. And I say to myself, look, like, I don't know Hegel that well. You know, so yeah, of course I'm interested in trying to understand this, this thinker better. I need to know him much better than I know him now. And so, you know, initially he's actually right. This is an intellectual project sort of engage, that, that, that opens up. And then we become friends and then not only are we becoming friends through the process of writing this book, but I find out that that Ryan is influenced by someone who's in, who's very important to me as a thinker, George Yancey, and not just intellectually influenced by George Yancey, right? Like Ryan takes George Yancey's encouragements and and pushes to tarry with one's own privilege. He takes those things seriously, and so there were moments where we would be working with each other throughout this this text and he would be like oh like he would he would help me understand this particular thing and then yet i would be sitting there frustrated about something that's going on in the world and he would be patient and and do those and do those things not simply as an act of kind of like ooh i'm the white savior guy but as an act of tarrying with someone who is making sense of this anti-black world as we're writing a project on anti-blackness and philosophy and I'll give you a, a prime example of this. In May, in May 2020, you all know this, George Floyd is killed. And yeah, nah, <laughs> I was not able to do much for some time. And Ryan was patient and he tarried. And he said, Whatever, we'll wait. We'll wait until you're ready. And I think, and I think that's the kind of, you know, that's the kind of work, that's the kind of relationship that developed 
out of writing this text. And so I think, I think what brought me to this text was, you know, one, an attempt to understand Hegel, two, an attempt to expose what I understand to be the anti-Blackness at the heart of philosophical thinking, but also three, to, to learn to continue to think collaboratively and also to push philosophical thinking further, we can be better. We absolutely can be better as philosophers, as ethicists. But the truth of the matter is, is that many of us get caught up in the same old static questions, not thinking about how philosophy could potentially influence and impact the world. And Ryan was invested in that kind of project. He was invested in trying to say something that was worth saying. And I, I think that's what got brought us together. And the last thing that I'll say is that this book, even as it is tragic at many moments, and I'll be done after this, this is also a book of profound, not optimism, but hope. Hope is not necessarily teleological either, right? Hope is not like, oh, like, you know where you're headed, right? Hope is the sort of desire that things might be different, things might be better. And I think this text is our attempt to say it has been, it's been messed up for Black people over the course of history. And yet there are figures throughout the course of history who have learned to carve out lives, not simply for themselves, but for others. Ella Baker being one of them, even King, Malcolm X, Angela Davis, all of these folks finding ways. And so I just say that to say that this is a text of profound hopefulness, even in moments of profound despair. If you want to find more about Biko Mandela Gray or Ryan J. Johnson, download a transcript or learn about some of the things we mentioned on today's episode, visit prindleinstitute.org backslash examining ethics. Examining Ethics is hosted by the Janet Prindle Institute for Ethics at DePaul University. Christian Weishart wrote and produced the show. Our logo was created by Evie Brogius. Our music is by Blue Dot Sessions and can be found online at sessions.blue. Examining Ethics is made possible by the generous support of DePaul alumni, friends of the Prindle Institute, and you, the listeners. Thank you for your support. The views expressed here are the opinions of the individual speakers alone. They do not represent the position of DePaul University or the Prindle Institute for Ethics.